Hey, one thing I can say about U.S. Native Americans, as far as I know, is that we don't give a fuck. Hello, and welcome to part 25 of our Understanding Class series. Today is Tuesday, the 7th of February 2023, and I'm your host, Tom O'Brien. We begin Chapter 7, The Ambiguities of Class in Thomas Piketty's Capital in the 21st Century. This week, I have the new patron, Kevin Alton Martineau, to thank. If you'd like to help support the show, please head on over to the Patreon, where you get access to all those Patreon-only episodes and the Discord server. If you'd like to find out more about the socialist planning book that Donald and myself are deep down in the process of writing, head on over to the Classless Society in Motion.com, where you can find links on how to support the project. As ever, the links to the slides for this episode are in the show notes. Okay, to the discussion. Right, are we ready for a song, Chapter 7? The TLDR on this chapter is Good Data, Bad Analysis. Yeah, pretty much it. And apparently even the data is not good. Yeah, Um, because in order to have data, you need to make analytical categories, and those analytical categories are informed by weird analysis, so... Yeah. Yeah, but but even the data is so complex. I think there's been like quite a few errors in the data that have diminished the actual uh, amount of inequality. And he's rolled back on some of the claims of our, the I mean, level of inequality. It's, it's really death by a thousand cuts with Piketty, right? Because like he just got attacked from so many sides at once because his analysis was so prominent. And, you know, there's stuff like, oh, the neoclassicals went after him because the fact that he based his uh, analysis on neoclassical categories made the, it meant that he couldn't make coherent statements about uh, inequality. And so they were like, oh, this is theoretically debunked. And then you get people going after the data for being, you know, improperly organized. And it, it's, yeah, a lot of people have gone after this book. Right. Let's go and have a go. This is Eric. Let's do Eric Wright's version of uh, going after him. Okay, so this is chapter seven, the ambiguities of class in Thomas Piketty's capital in the 21st century. Okay, we've got the introduction here. Actually, I'll take the introduction and get me going. I have a drink of my wine here, celebrating the death of the queen, the Al Hur. Let's go. Okay. <laughs> you, yeah. Keep that name out your mouth, you know. you. Yeah, don't disrespect whores. Yeah, that's that is true. But in Ireland, in Ireland, it's yeah. a different thing. It, it's like a, I know oh, it's yeah. that word, but it's got a different emphasis. You know what I mean? <laughs> well, in Ireland, it's, it's, it's not it differently. So it's, 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 it's a different word. Yeah, it's it's right. whores. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, but but also it really has talking about uh, Hoosiers. You know, the, uh, it has it has a different connotation. Do you know? Like you, it also can be a term of endearment if you call somebody like in Ireland, right? It, the term is, you'll laugh at this one now, you call somebody a cute whore. And what that means is that you are like smart and conniving, which uh, doesn't translate <laughs> to any other uh-huh. part of the world. Uh-huh. You call somebody a cute no, whore, I like, like that, what? actually. 
It's actually illegal to say the term cute whore in the Irish Parliament. You know. Somebody had abused that they term. <laughs> somebody, some entire group of people was probably saying it so much that they specifically banned the. Oh, that's, that, that is a bit. I don't think I could have possibly understood that's the most how Irish important thing. that cute whores are to Irish culture. The other phrase I know for, I think it's the other phrase that's banned in Irish Parliament. Do you know what it is? It's um, calling somebody a cowboy. A cowboy? <laughs> yeah. Like the, like the Kid Rock song? No, Twice. it's more like, like in Ireland, a cowboy is somebody like who's a chancer, who's like a fucking mm. a fraudster. So you, you got, you're a cowboy! And oh, that's great. <laughs> they say, out of order, out of order. They'd say like, rescind that now. <laughs> And have to say, I apologize for offending the deputy fucking O'Brien or whatever. You know, it's cowboy and cute who are two no-nos in Irish political life. So, so hilarious. <laughs> A specter is haunting Ireland. Okay, introduction. So in the US until recently, so this is putting it into context about inequality in the, in the dialogue of like uh, left dialogue or even kind of mainstream dialogue in the US around the post-occupy movement around the time when Wright was probably putting some of this chapter together, I expect. So in the US, until recently, so 2015 he was writing this, inequality was treated as a problem only with respect to discussion of opportunities and rights. Equal opportunities and rights are deeply held American values and certain type of inequalities are seen as violating them. These would be like, they, they, they violate the idea of the level playing field. The main issue was not the magnitude of the you know, distance between how rich and poor you were, but the absolute material deprivations of people living in poverty and how this harms their life chances. Inequality was not an important academically recognized problem. And it's it was still it's still argued in the long term that the high incomes of the wealthy benefit everyone since out of this income that new investments are made and will thus generate the rising tide that lifts all boats. It was in this changing atmosphere of the Occupy movement that Thomas Piketty's capital in the 21st century appeared, an unlikely international bestseller. So, like, has it changed since here? Like, is, are we not still in the same space where people still think high incomes aren't, you know, an impediment to low incomes? Is that that's generally still the case? Would we would we be right in saying that? I mean, I'm not super in touch. I mean, I think among like mainstream political opinion as far as, like, what's accepted in, like, American political discourse, yes, but as among the American populace, I don't think anyone really believes this. Except for, I mean, not anyone, There's but... a significant number of people feel left behind. Yeah. Like, especially over the pandemic. If you were, you know, salaried, you would have... You could potentially work from home and get some mental health problems. But if you're, you know, if you relied on going out for work and, you know, the pandemic sort of closed society, like, for good reason... Those those people tend to feel very left out and feel the zero sumness. I guess you're either an essential worker and Karen's coughing on you, or you're just out of a job and like you get barely anything from your government to make up for it. Yeah, it's things have gotten so weird that there are there's like a wave of successful unionizations in the U.S. Okay, so capital in the 21st century. Uh, Esri, how do you feel about taking this one then? Let's do it. Piketty's book is built around the detailed analysis of the trajectory of two dimensions of economic inequality and their interconnection, income and wealth. 
Previous research on this topic is severely hampered by the lack of data on the richest people because so few people at the top are selected in survey samples and top coding of income and wealth categories in most available data. It has been impossible to study the historical trajectory of inequality for more than a few decades because of the lack of any good data much before the middle of the 20th century. Piketty has solved these problems to a significant extent by assembling a massive data set starting from the early 1900s based on tax and estate data. So saith the slide. Yeah, like, so like, I think it must be no, like, I think anybody, everybody who I've, like, I remember interviewing Kleiman about, literally about this. He had some problems with it. Kleiman just doesn't think that um, real incomes for workers fell, essentially, because of um, welfare payments. Like, right. Yeah, so that's that's like one of those. Um, so for the for the American context, that's something that you would mostly hear from a right wing economist, not from like a left Keynesian or something. So it's like a horseshoe theory type thing, if you know what I mean. Like that, right. that's a pretty unorthodox left position. I think it's I think it's a misinterpretation of the data myself personally, because like if you look at, say, the amount of like so included in that, like in your income would be all the money that's spent, say, on your health care and how yeah. grossly ineffective it is that. So like mm -hmm. it you know it's the equivalent of saying well right. we'll give it like if they were to say oh well we'll give you loads of extra income right and then we'll just like charge you ten times for your food right that it's not a real increase in your quality of life but it's like it will look on the books like a transfer of income but in reality it's a pushing of your earnings into fucking you know healthcare systems that are hugely profitable for capital so. I, I think there's real problems with Andrew's argument on that, to be honest. Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of preposterous. Like, if you just look at any social realities. Right. Um, <laughs> as opposed to, like, debating the nuances of constructing and deconstructing data sets. Right, but I think, like, one part of Andrew's one is that, like, the inequality is that women have gotten uh, more income as well so that the disparity is reduced between like women and men. So I think it's a complex issue, to be honest with you. I think people look back as well at the 60s and see like, you know, auto workers doing well, but most of, a lot of America people were shit fucking poor at the same time. So like, it, I, yeah. you know, it, it's probably a bit of everything thrown into the mix. Well, I think this is why, kind of a sidebar, but I think this is why like qualitative research needs to be an important part of these kinds of projects because it doesn't give you something that you can generalize from, but like you wouldn't make that mistake in interpreting quantitative data if you saw how people were living on welfare, right? Like you couldn't generalize to everyone in America living in welfare based on a small qualitative sample size, but like I think you would you would check yourself in, in that interpretation on, on, on the quantitative data anyway. But it must be said, though, Piketty's done a great job in actually putting together a fucking massive database. You know, that is a positive thing for for like people wanting to do research. I think that's nearly the great achievement, really. Yeah, that's mm -hmm. that's what Wright says. And if Wright, with his virtue centered approach, is is like, well, you put together a data set for like a seven hundred page book, like that's kind of damning with faint praise, maybe. Like, well, you're talking <laughs> well, I mean, about he, also, he also points out that nobody read the book, right? Yeah. Like, well, it's just well, very improbable. That it's one of these bestsellers that's just like a, one of those between the 
you know, between audiences, who is this for kind of books, but it worked, you know, it sold. Man, how did it sell? I think like- Much Intellectual culture? I don't know. I'm what not, is America? Really sure. It was on the New York Times bestseller. No, 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 I, I know, but the, so in America- Oh, sorry, sorry. Oh, sorry ever okay. since the revolution, there's yeah. been this like mystique around French intellectual culture that persists today, which is why there has been so much anti-left signaling from American Emancipation Network members, or anti-French signaling, I should say. Fuck the French. See that, that, that's what I'm talking about. Now, if you're in the, you know, countryside in France, it's not actually directed at you. Fuck the French. It's more or less directed towards uh, the Jacques Derrida or something. No, it's directed yeah. to you too. I like France. Uh, do you know what I like about France? Do you know what's weird? Going to a bookshop in France. Because you actually know what France is. Yeah, we're Americans. So. But like, you, you go into a Freedom bookshop. France. A, a, a normal bookshop. Kyle, have you been to France? I have been to France, yes. You know when you go into a normal bookshop, they design like the book covers and everything to look intellectual, even if it's like a fucking thriller, right? You mm -hmm. go into the bookshop, that you think true. you're going into like, a, oh, this is a, I've just stumbled on the greatest bookshop ever. And you go, what is this book? This looks like it's some really interesting looking when you pull it out and it's like Harry Potter or something, but it's in like a bound cover. It's really bizarre. Yeah. <laughs> so it, lo it looks like the coming insurrection, but it's actually just like Twilight. Yeah. Was that that Tom Hanks movie, Da Vinci yeah. Code? That's what I was trying to get. <laughs> yeah. Like, you look up with like a bound Bible copy of the Da Vinci. Code. Yeah, yeah, Bible yeah, Bible. yeah. It is. It's really weird. You think you're like in a in a in an academic shop, and you go in, and it's no, it's, it's fucking Dan Brown. Yeah, it's exactly correct. That was exactly the order I'm trying to think of, Kyle. Yeah, <laughs> it's really wild. Totally different. Okay. You know, uh, I think the Kindle statistics on capital in the 21st century is that most people have never actually even read it at all people just kind of buy it and yeah. maybe dip in for like a couple pages i think it's like three percent i think i read it it's like three percent get past the introduction yeah. yeah something like that I mean, this is kind of similar to like Norbert Wiener's cybernetics book, right? It's it's another yeah. one of those where it's it's like lots of people bought it, nobody understood it or read it. Yeah, well, actually, I wanted to mention that it was really interesting being in Japan when this book came out because when the when the Japanese translation came out, they had like like this big like book display at the front of the bookshop. Like, and this wasn't like fancy pants bookshop or anything. This is just your regular bookshop in a mall. And yeah, it was like a huge display at the front of the bookshop when you came in all about capital of the 21st century, had tons of copies there. And they had like all these other like minor books about Keynes that were like around the, it. And it, it was just... It was very strange considering like the book had already come out in the Anglo world. Nobody read it. And then it got translated to Japanese and they're like, okay, time to sell a bunch more copies that nobody's ever going to read. Right. right. Nobody read it, but it sold well. And it was next to like the Sailor Moon manga display. Like what the fuck? Uh, it was, uh, it was roughly about, I would say, 15 feet from the Sailor Moon manga display. Are, oh, I said that as a joke. Whoa. Oh. <laughs> I feel like surprised. What, you don't think they read Sailor Moon in Japan? No, of course they read Sailor Moon. <laughs> you don't think they read the classics there? Yeah. Pickety's <laughs> capital 21st century. Like I, like I said, it was, it was at the Sailor front Moon of the store. Way. It wasn't like back in the yeah. econ section or anything like that. <laughs> 
No, yeah, but of course. It's right next to the manga display. Yeah. Wow. Like, the thing is, though, as well, like, there was probably two books at the time that got used. But, like, to me, it was, like, it had a, a kind of a very much a kind of an ideological role, this book. Like, after yes. the crash, it like, they needed the book that they could say to people, this is it. And preferably one that you will never read can play that role. <laughs> you know, there was that oh, yeah. and another one called uh, This Time is Different. Both of them had dodgy, that one, this time different, had very dodgy data, like completely incorrect data that turned out to make the argument completely the other way around when it was corrected. And none of the actual experts in the area could reproduce any of their results. So, but those two in particular, like this is before I ever got into Marx, like they were like, oh, maybe, maybe Piketty was later. What year was Piketty? Anybody know what year Piketty was? Kyle? 2010? No, it was oh, after that. Yeah, it is it not thirteen or something? It was like mid mid decade. Thirteen. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, so that was like when I was just like podcast is about a year on. So no, it was true. But that like that was the first. I feel like that was like the other one. This time is different. Was more about national debt in the eurozone. It was getting used for, but like the actual whole general idea of what the the crisis, a uh, kind of a. Uh, an establishment economic lefty Keynesian kind of response. This was it. This played that ideological role. Yeah, yeah. This should, this should give us a lot of respect for functional theories of ideology, because the fact that so many people bought this book as a totem of like this is an acceptable critique of capitalism and didn't even bother to fucking read it. Like correct, because we needed an acceptable critique of capitalism, and somehow our society selected for this. For this one, not the existing Molotov cocktail tradition of economics, which also sucks sometimes. But hey, like it's there. I I was I was encouraged to hear though that like Kohei Saito's new book, Capital of the Anthropocene, has sort of gotten the same treatment in Japan at the bookstores that uh, huh. Piketty's book got back in the day, and it is actually written by a Marxist. So. And there's been a revival of, of of interest in Marxism as a result in Japan. So, you know, sometimes you can yeah. go beyond just the acceptable New York Times friendly version. What does that mean? In the name of the moon, I will punish you. I wish I know how to say in the name of Karl Marx, I will punish you. Yeah. I know most of that phrase. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it's it's next to the Sailor Moon display now, exactly. <laughs> I was just picturing, like, a Sailor Moon cutout, like, holding Thomas Piketty's book. No, it wasn't anything like that. It was okay. it was very, uh, you know, reserved and adult in its, its presentation. Yeah. Uh, well, if we're talking about anime, surely we should go over to our resident expert, uh, Vicky. Vicky, what have you got to say about Sailor Moon? It's good. Go watch it. Excellent. Thanks for those wise words. Thank okay. <laughs> <laughs> now back to uh, Ezri. Do you want to take the second part? Or uh, Sophie? Or uh, Sophie? Okay. Give it to Sophie. Yeah. Sophie. Okay. Uh, Sophie's much cooler. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I'm, I'm a cool one. I'm passing the baton to you. Woo! All right. The trajectory of income inequality. The central observation that animates much of Piketty's analysis is the U shaped craft of the share of national income going to the top layers of the income distribution. 
The richest 10% of the population receive just over half of all income generated in the U.S. economy. The sharp rise in income share of the top income decile is largely the result of dramatic rise in income share of the top 1%. Income is not merely becoming more concentrated at the top. It is still much more concentrated at the top of the top. In every country studied, income concentration declined sharply from 1920s to the 1960s. The increase in the latter part of the century varied considerably from country to country. These trends are much more pronounced in the U.S. So, that's interesting, isn't it? I wonder what happened in the world to make things more equal up until about the 1960s. Interesting. Hmm. 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 Yeah, World War II. Well, but also the post-World War One kind of, I don't know. Like, is it just World War Two? It's well, just World War Two. It's just World War Two. Yeah, there's, there's World, no... World War Two and the the class compromises afterwards that were there yes. to yeah. as part of the Cold War. Yeah. Keynesianism starts with chartalism, and it's and it's really all about military spending and using military spending to like buoy a whole fucking economy. In nineteen, but in the late thirties, probably just or mid to late thirties, boom. Earlier, if you're Germany. And the rest of them in the late 30s. Boom, for 20 years. That's what we're saying. Here it is. This is the share of national income going to to different high-income categories. So we have the richest, around 40%, up to nearly 50% in the 1929. Then it drops to about 32 or 3% by 1940. Stays flat until the 70s and the neoliberal period starts. And then it climbs right back up. This is to 2014 or 15 by the looks of the data, and yeah. uh, up to 50%. And then we have the income between the top 1% and top 10%. Okay, so this is showing that the those that are in from 10% riches up to the, the 2% riches grew, but it didn't grow as fast as the richest 10%. So that affected the big steep rises, what's happening to the top 1%, which we see down below. Okay, so the top 1% are getting over 20% of the national income at this stage. So that's a sizable amount. That's and then you, 20... have to, then you can break it down to like within the 1% and to so like five more. dudes. Right. right. And it's off the that's chart, insane. you know. Yeah. So I, I like how you could see in that graph exactly when punks started singing about Margaret Thatcher and Reagan. Like that little little spike right at the beginning of the 80s you know so that's when uh maggie's a fucking cunt was dropped by chaos uk yeah right there wow cause or effect yes oh, it's overdetermined yeah you, no one can tell you can't tell yeah <laughs> yeah you, i wouldn't want to be reductive i'm looking at just that like the top bit this you know this really jumps out to me is the way that sure everybody's share falls in between 1931 and 1940 but the richest 10% they take a, let's see, it's <laughs> about like, I don't know, 12% nosedive that it takes them from 1976 to about 1990 to recover. Like Mid 90s kind yeah, of? Yeah, 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 yeah. Like Bart Simpson. Yeah, like Pac, Biggie. Yeah. Like the, the richest 1% didn't recover until about 2006 or seven by the looks of it. According to this graph, the richest 1% still haven't recovered to where they were in 1929. The Roaring Twenties, baby. 
Yeah, 2003 was, was the top uh, when Arrested Development was a show. <laughs> Arrested Development being about people who are priced out of this graph. And, well, we're we're way beyond this graph at this point now. Like, I don't remember the exact details, but, like, it's become beyond obscene. Like, it is, I think it's the mm -hmm. highest levels of inequality in human yeah. history ever. We're, we're, like, beyond that at this point. But, like, is inequality not a good thing, though, Kyle? Yeah, yeah, what... what... What normative well, you analysis? Know, as long you as you're on a level playing field and but, uh, you get out there, uh, well, you know, you just put shots on net and uh, fair play. Uh, everybody shows good hustle. What about Sorensen? Uh, are you a sports commentator now? That's good. Maybe Harry Carey. Isn't this how American ideology thinks yes. about inequality? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, we, you, you got to get good hustle, you know? Yeah, yeah. Like, um, you know, you got to untie your boots teamwork. and start pulling, baby. Um, I did that when I was drunk once and I landed straight in my face. <laughs> That's all I'm saying. But, like, what about Sorensen? Did he not say, like, that inequality is, in, increasing inequality is closer to communism? Well, yeah, it's because he, de he defined, like, up is down, basically. So ah, Sorensen really is the, the, the Harry Carey of American economic analysis. I wouldn't say that. A about Harry Carey, I feel like he's a, <laughs> a, a, a great science popularizer. <laughs> right, Vicky, how do you feel about hitting how Piketty explains these broad patterns? Well, Piketty explains these broad patterns by one, the rapid increase in concentration of incomes since the early 1980s which is mainly the result of increases in super salaries at the top of labor market earnings, uh, rather than the result of dramatic increases in income from capital ownership. In the early 20th century, income from capital was the primary resource for the top 1% of the income hierarchy, whereas in 2007, one has to climb to the top 0.1% level before this is actually true. Number two, the universal decline in income inequality in the middle of the 20th century and the varying extent of its increase across different countries since then stems from, it stems from the exercise of power in various ways, not the quote-unquote natural workings of the market. Power exercised by the state is especially important in counteracting the inegalitarian forces of the market through taxation, income transfers, and a range of regulations. And then number three, the emergence of super managers. These are the top managers, by and large, who have the power to set their own salaries and remuneration in some cases without limit, and in many cases without any clear relation to their in individual productivity. I, I remember like one of the most egregious ones I remember from about 10 years ago, I think it was the chief executive of the New York Stock Exchange, gave himself like a $45 million pay rise one year. <laughs> I think he gave himself $45 million, and it was so egregious they managed to fire him, but he managed to keep his his payment as severance. That yeah. always stuck out to me. Was it this chapter where Wright makes the crack that it's more like hands in the till than the invisible hand? <laughs> yes, yeah. I think so. 
So in the wake of the financial crisis of 2008, you had a lot of people talking about like the golden parachute problem, you know, where a big part of what people were talking about when they talked about like the 1% was that it doesn't matter how good or how bad they are for anybody but themselves because whether they fuck up or do an amazing job, they are always going to be paid. Even when they get fired, they get massive payouts, right? And they fail upward. Oh yeah, and they always fail upward. They they fuck up at one place, they get kicked out, and then someone else goes, hey, we'll offer you $10 million more a year. Right. And that, then some like cartoon right-winger from the internet goes like, this is just corporatism, and this isn't how capitalism is supposed to be, or something. And in that crack that Wright is making about, you know, this is more like hands in the tail than the invisible hand, there's something like unique about this kind of configuration of like disparate ownership and being able to like unofficially net an enormous like ownership level, like profit from just switching up, your, like just, you know, going into the institution that you basically run and deciding it and how that's like a different social form than just, you know, I own your factory and, you know, I'm like a, I have like a, you know, cigar and I'm, you know, from a Charles Dickens novel. You know what I mean? Like, it's just like very different from old industrial capitalism. Mm. There, There is like, especially when the Soviet Union like has labor markets of some kind, or you know, I, I don't know, especially when there's, I should say markets for like obvious commodity markets in the Soviet Union. And you have like corporate power structures more or less through the party. Or like when you have like, you know, the role that this, the party takes in Chinese, the Chinese economy and stuff like that. There really is like a gradient between these types of things. And it does work kind of more towards, like, it has a different, it has a different incentive structure than regular so-called, you know, capitalism, even what? though this is the natural outgrowth of capitalism. Like this is, if any, if, if anything is truly capitalist in some way, it's this. This is what all that industrial capitalism was building towards in some historical sense. That industrial capitalism was sort of a transitory form to birth this. Like, right. it's interesting, like, as just an example, uh, when I was used to read The Economist and before I ever got into any of this stuff, they had some book on, like, kind of, kind of management science book, kind of pop science book about, you know, how managers fuck up and how to realize what managers are doing. And I was a manager at the time. I said, oh, I'll buy this, you know, and I thought it would be interesting. I was reading and it was about, in England, there's a chain of pharmacies called Boots. They're like the biggest chain of pharmacies in the UK. And this, the the CEO, uh, like, fucked it up. He tried to start, like, change tack and putting in, like, you know, massage fucking tables and stuff into the pharmacy. And it was a total flop. And I was reading this anyway. And then... Uh, our CEO and the business I was working at the, at the time, it was a big enough business now. And uh, he basically had quit or quit or moved on to something else. And they introduced who our new CEO was. It was the guy who fucking got fired by Boots for fucking up the entire company. <laughs> I was I was literally just reading the book at the time about how this guy was a fuck up. <laughs> and it was like, here's your new CEO. <laughs> it's a good example. Yeah. Wow. And, and I mean, if, if you tell that story to someone that's in, 
a certain type of private industry that's not like big enough to be exactly like, you know, that they'll be horrified because, oh my God, the, the markets aren't performing their social Darwinist function. My God. I mean, meritocratic. Like <laughs> <laughs> We're just getting the, the engineer here who blew up the latest NASA launch. And yeah, you know, he's our chief <laughs> engineer. Yeah, you know, it, like, and, and I, I will defend like STEM institutions over this. Like, if you fuck up the NASA launch, you're, like, it, how likely oh. is it that you'll get promoted? Like, really, like, it, that would be a ruiner. Like, those people seem to, maybe I'm a bit naive, but like, that it stands to reason that people would frown upon it. Yeah, I mean, I would imagine that's not always true, but if you get someone killed, <laughs> if, with some of these. Yeah, if you if there's stakes there. But even like if you read that uh, inquiry that um, Feynman did into like one of the Challenger blowups, mm-hmm. like still no heads really rolled from that, you know. And people just like I remember there was one thing there was like they were asking like each individual like component manufacturer saying what's the chances like this component fails and they were like that's one in a thousand and like what's the chances this one fails and what's the chances this one fails and then like so basically there was a load of things that on the books were down as a million to one chance of error and when they asked like the engineers they were like no it's more like a thousand and then when you add up all those thousands to ones it gets to like 20 percent that the chance the thing will blow up and they were asking like the chief engineers at NASA and he goes, so what is the chances then that all these, that the thing will go wrong? And then they were like, yeah, it'd be a million to one. Because <laughs> they were like scientists, but they were politicians too. They were uh, you know, no, 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 that, that, that's telling actually. Something like, something like NASA is exactly the kind of scientific institution that would be affected by this because of, of their sort of ideological like roles. And, and, and the amount yeah. of money that's involved. Yeah, money. yeah, well, and, and the amount, well, it's, like that kind of, yeah, that kind of STEM is tied directly into the military state because they do all the engineering. They care about physics and math so they can make shit blow up with satellites. Yeah. And, you know, rockets. Okay, next, talk about rockets. Let's talk about the trajectory of wealth inequality. Kyle. Gorgeous segue. Thank you. So Piketty uses the terms wealth and capital interchangeably. He defines capital in a comprehensive manner as, quote, the sum total of non-human assets that can be owned and exchanged on some market includes all forms of real property as well as financial and professional capital, that is plants, infrastructure, machinery, patents, etc., used by firms and government agencies. Piketty calls the income generated by capital as the return on capital. A fundamental feature of any market economy is the division of national income into the part that goes to owners of capital and the part that goes to labor. Right. So like this is like right making these critiques, you know, like that wealth and capital are interchangeable as opposed to like what Marx says about like the differentiates between wealth and value. I presume that's what Wright is getting to. So mm. like value being the amount of socially necessary labor con- time contained or represented in a, the value of a good versus just like general wealth, you know, clean air and stuff that has no technical price and capital. So Wright is pretty invested in the difference between like a capital asset and a labor asset though. Right. So do you want to say more on that? Yeah, I mean... 
we're having a discussion of about rent analysis a couple episodes ago. And part of the hazard in the neoclassical rent analysis is that you can end up with something like what Piketty does, which is, um, and I, I guess we're going to get to this. He folds like rising incomes for, for super managers, I guess he calls them. Whenever we get into some form of rent analysis and we get to stuff that's significantly like above, you know, significant deviation from like the rest of outcomes, you usually see the word super as a way of showing the sort of gradient between different types of earnings. Anyway, um, he, you know, he folds that into labor, right? Like the late, like the labor share of the pie because of its form, because he's buying into the social form more than he cares to distinguish between, and, you know, admittedly it's hard to know where exactly to cut off. Where is middle income manager and where is, you know, oh, well, these people are bourgeoisie now. Like, you know, where is that exactly? I don't know. But if it's your job and you're a left-wing economist, you might give a fuck about that. Right. I think he's trying to set up here, essentially, Kyle, correct me here if I'm wrong, but that like, that how Piketty is basically setting himself up as a neoclassical by talking about the income generated by capital as a return on capital. Would I be right there? I don't really think it's like the, like the exact substance of Wright's critique of him, but he is like critiquing how, yeah, basically the things that Piketty counts as capital have an obscuring role because these like what do you, what does he call them like super wages or or the the, the wages of, super of super managers super salaries yeah super like they actually include a lot of things like you know like stock options and that kind of stuff which probably shouldn't be rolled in uh, as the same thing as just uh cash payment as your salary because they actually have quite different roles and would alter alter the, the the graphs that Piketty is creating here to show like returns to labor versus returns to capital. But is it also that he's uh, conglomerating together, like from a Marx point of view, capital like plants and machinery infrastructure, et cetera, with rented like real estate and confusing like uh, uh, yeah, where the his, is coming from? His thing he says at the end of the chapter seems to focus more on the difference between owning a home as a domicile, somewhere you'd live, versus like stocks and that kind of stuff. But like he doesn't he doesn't really seem to talk about speculative real estate investment very much, but you can certainly take it in that direction. Yeah. Okay. Do you want to keep going there, Kyle, or the next slide then? Sure. Uh, so Piketty makes two basic observations about wealth and inequality. The first, levels of concentration of wealth are always greater than concentrations of income, which, you know, makes sense given that, like, capital is, quote unquote, self-expanding, right? So over time, the wealth concentration is going to increase more than the income concentration. Is it not more that it's an expression of, of of labor power that own like that the workers own nothing but their labor power, so they can always get money for their labor power. So not all of the income, like they don't own 
they don't own yeah it, it's it's the proportion of dead labor to living labor right, right. that right. that's that's the basics of it but yeah the dead labor tends to concentrate in a way that living labor obviously doesn't because living labor has to be compensated to each living laborer right and uh, income income includes basically living labor and wealth uh, like incomes are largely nearly independent of that of that it's usually rich people who are earning like wealth incomes you know capital incomes yeah it's quote unquote your money working for you right that's wealth right and 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 it would be like if if Piketty was a little bit more uh, tidy about his categorizations, this difference would be even more extreme, right? Because we're including things like stock options and income, which is kind of sketchy. Classification um, error. Classification error. Yes. It's, it's not exactly nothing, but their, you know, their hands and their heart. If, you know what I mean? Like... Which I guess if, if you were to try to understand the contemporary proletariat, because the way that compensation works is kind of disparate and there are like pretty low level people that technically make a salary, but are sort of never off the clock. You know, all the things that Mark says in Capital about like peace wages and the way that mm -hmm. the value form disguises itself, the way that wage labors, you know, and commodified labor disguises itself in different ways would sort of, I guess, apply if, you know, if you're really deep, if you're deeply invested in, in the classical, like Marxian, like framework, you know, thinking about the, the salary form in addition to like peace wage form is, you know, I think helpful at least trying to disentangle and sort of convert to wage labor terms, if you will, to try to like figure out who's exploiting essentially and who's not because like at a, at a certain point, people are making more than they produce in value as managers and it's complicated. Yeah, I mean, in Marx, like you get the so-called like, what is it? The wages of superintendents, which, which Marx cites in like a mocking way, like he's, he's making fun of the idea, but like these super salaries are like literally the the wages of superintendents right super uh, duper intendants yeah super super, super in two wages yes this is when goku becomes your your branch manager <laughs> um, i'll have to defer to uh, i'll have to defer to our expert in anime here vicky could you explain that joke to me I could, yes. Okay. <laughs> well, I'll keep reading here. I'll keep reading here. So in the U.S. in 2010, the top decile of wealth holders owned 70% of all wealth and the bottom half earned nearly nothing. Checks out. So this is the second observation. The key to understanding the long-term trajectory of wealth concentration is what Piketty calls the capital to income ratio. This ratio is a way of measuring the value of capital relative to the total income generated by an economy. In developed capitalist economies today, this ratio for privately owned capital is between four to one and seven to one. 
His argument is that this ratio is the structural basis for the distribution of income between owners of capital and labor. The higher this ratio, the higher the proportion of national incomes goes to wealth holders. I just, I hate this goddamn thing. Somebody explain this to me, because this seems to me, is this the, what is it? This is the ratio between measure of the value of capital relative to total income generated. Is this like a kind of a pseudo rate of profit measure? No, it's, uh, it would be like a rate of rent, basically. <laughs> So like the the more the more biased everything is towards privately owned capital or towards capital, the more of the total income of the economy will go towards capital holders, right? It's like like I said before, it's like the ratio of dead labor to living labor. So if you have a right. seven to one ratio, That'd be a proxy proxy for profit rate, is it not though? No, it can't be a proxy for the profit rate because if it's a proxy for the profit rate, then that wouldn't take it like you couldn't have unprofitable capital holdings, right? Yeah, so what, what would it be like C over V or something? This is uh, this is total income. This is V plus right. S over over C. Okay, no, no, you're right. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so total income. Yeah. So C over, I guess, V plus S, to annual total. So essentially, I'm not saying it's exactly, but it's, economy, it's, 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 no, it's, it's, but it's, no, it's, I, I, I think they're incommensurate. And I think that's why it's so it? frustrating. Am I wrong? No, like the, the measure of value of capital is like your C, okay? I'm not going to say they're exactly because I know they're slightly like. Yeah, that, like that is, that isn't an economy with no rents, right? Well, no. It's like C to GDP. Well, okay, but, uh, <laughs> Okay, so but he's including he's including rents in his C essentially. What he was from the last mm -hmm. like yeah, Kyle. Yeah. So yeah, and then on the other side, so that's our four and seven is the amount of capital okay. stock, right? And then on the right hand side is the income that's generated by an economy. So the income I assume is, you know, uh, yeah, U, and S S, S would be okay. or S yes S, S would be counted as and V. And V, because that's the well, it's and, V and right. S. And and I think like I, I I'm I'm oh. thinking it must be C, it, but it, it must be CVS because annual total income like is yeah. So I, I also found this mystifying actually. So, so what I'm like this at all? Yeah. So, I, what, I, thought, so what, I don't know if this is Wright's problem or Piketty's problem, but I found this mystifying. What I'm trying to say here is that like. It, like the, the profit rate in capitalism would be S over C plus yeah. V. Right? Here's how I and think about is, it. Wait now, wait now, wait now, wait now. In like from a Marxist point of view, your rate of profit is S over C plus V. Okay. And then in for what Piketty is doing here is he's saying V plus S over C. Now they're different, right? But they will have the same trajectory when the things are moving in the same way. So basically he's saying like it will track profit. I'm sure it'll track profit rates. And basically the lower the profit rate. Well, yeah, S, it's going to track saying here is profit rates because the, the higher the profit rate, the more the ratio will become disparate. But it's not the same thing. That's all I'm saying. Right. Yeah, 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 Grant, yeah. Grant, yeah. What, 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 just, trying to, just trying to get into the logic of what this ratio kind of implies. That's what I'm trying to get here. Is that because like... As, 
Like he totally, literally, he we totally treats it like a proxy he, for labor, and it's so much more complicated. Like Piketty, it appears the way yeah. that Wright describes it, that right. Piketty treats national income as a proxy for labor, which, from Marx's point of view, is just like completely mystified. That's bullshit. Yeah. Well, like, well, but what he's what he, he's using a measure here though that like this um, like gets away like somehow gives you something that's correlated to profit rates and how they go down. So like about like my understanding sure. kind of is that like you know as profit rates go down you need to exploit more your rate of exploitation inequality goes up and we're I mean, seeing this as well but it, he, he mystifies Tom, this. you just it's, can't make that equation because you like if you're talking about the profit rate you have to take into account all kinds of bullshit like like keynesianism like and how profit rates can be like inflated in nominal terms by government spending versus the underlying value terms are. Right. Okay. Look, I'm obviously, you know, we're being very crude here in my analysis, right? Yeah. And I'm trying to, I'm saying that up front. I'm not trying to say these are exactly the same, but there is a, that there, to me, it looks like this measure that he's using is correlated to a rate of profit measure. I would say, it looks like it's kind of fairly pro correlated. Obviously, I haven't looked at that, Kyle. So give me a break then. Just let me make the, finish the point. But like, Great. you know, I, I feel like that, well, the bit I really dislike about this is that it creates this ratio as a kind of a random ratio that doesn't give us really a core understanding about the nature of the economy. I suppose that's, and it's this kind of like idealist kind of notion of this, this ratio is to blame. And that, you know, it doesn't give us any deeper understanding. That's kind of my overall general critique of this ratio that really annoys me. But yeah, it seems that, to mirror so, profitability in a sense with hiding that kind of dynamic. To try to keep with the, the analog, because, you know, it's not exactly the same terms. It's something like C to VS, and VS is just mashed together. And so growth is mystified. That's where, that's where you're coming from? Yes. Fair. So I, I gave up trying to understand this in, in Marxian terms at all. And maybe that's easier for me because I haven't studied as much like value theory, but like I looked at this as, as basically like Piketty is trying to treat income, national income as a proxy, proxy for labor. And that clearly just falls apart there. But that's what he's trying to make the case for. But what this really is a measurement for is, is, is concentrated wealth over national income. And once I thought of it that way, it made more sense just in its own contained logic and how it fails at what it's saying to do instead of trying to translate it to Marx and then back to Piketty. Yeah, it's just, it's confusing because Wright's critique isn't made in terms of Marxist political economy. So like the critique that we might come up with and the critique that Wright comes up with are quite similar, but they're not going to be exactly the same thing, right? Because Wright isn't, Wright isn't basing his argument in any kind of underlying labor theory of value. No, but he is kind of going to put his critique in a kind of a Marxist category. Yes, yes, critique. yes. Yeah. Yeah, he's coming up with a similar argument. Yes. It's yeah. a sociological critique, 
It's not like yeah. a political economy. Right. But it's using the kind of political economy categories of Marx without outside of value theory. It's 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 superior to Piketty. Like it's not like what we would do. But like it's it is the thing that drives me the most nuts about Piketty. I will say, like, is is like that. Well, this is just, this is just neoclassical like, stuff. Like, isn't it, Kyle? Yeah, everything yeah. Piketty is doing is neoclassical, yeah. and yeah, yeah, yeah. right stuff is like modified neoclassical. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. I can, I can, I can deal with Wright's modified neoclassical framework, and Piketty's is completely alien to me. Piketty, like this, this like ratio is like this is exactly the type of bullshit that like you know your manager or something would yeah like read this book and go yeah God it's to do with this this ratio the ratio this ratio all. governs all. Yeah, with no understanding of what the fuck the ratio is based upon. Well, completely you, you, obscured. And I just you, want to you know shoot some, the book when I read this stuff. Well, you know mathematics is, is bad here when I think the math is the worst part. Like, <laughs> like I got to the equation, I'm like, ah, oh, this, oh, I hate this now. You know, like, and I'm, I'm always waiting for that equation to come up. I'm like, oh, finally, I get to use my Jedi training. And fuck that. Like, no, th this was more, this was definitely more mystifying than it was helpful. Yeah, I mean, it's it's the problem with Piketty, right, is that, like, his argument has a certain kind of polemical value to it, but it, it just really falls apart when you get into it. Even though there are, like, categorical problems with Piketty's analysis that we've identified here, his ratio does point in the direction of a massive inequality in society and that had like a you know a big political effect in terms of just like changing the discourse right it's it's like the actual ratio would probably be a lot more extreme than this but he still pointed to the inequality well, i just remember this is like this is so endemic of liberalism at the time of like the uh you know early 2010s where there's all this like talk of like this income inequality which was like everywhere at the time but it barely scratched the surface of how bad it was and the logic within these critiques rarely held up the scrutiny mm -hmm. so it created it created very easy straw men for the right to tear apart when they were also clearly batshit I think mm. at the time this would be, this would have been resonant with a part of you know the American left that was still using the language of the middle class, which you know the description of the sea change in public opinion uh, around class right is talking about is very real because you know working class was like a it's kind of a purely reactionary signifier for a while and middle class was this like okay thing and I'm not saying you know worker has lost its reactionary valence in the u.s but you know there's other stuff there too <laughs> like well look um, liberals can't ignore the fact that like worker means like urban black poor people also not just like rust belt hicks just on twitter but, it seems to have changed remarkably to be honest twitter is not an accurate metric for anything though <laughs> what, 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 wait, wait now wait now wait now what, what's that it's not, it's, not, it's not really an accurate metric for anything, uh, but it is, eh, it's, you, you know. You mean the queen is alive? A... <laughs> the queen is alive? 
I hate to break it to you, Tom. <laughs> oh, no! <laughs> I'm sorry to be the bearer of bad news. You brought the queen back to life just to spite Tom. If you'd like to help fund the book that Donald and myself are writing about communist economic planning, please head over to the website theclasslesssocietyinmotion.com where you can donate to our fund to help us get this book out in a finite time. Everybody who donates will get a signed copy of the book when it's released. So head on over there today and help us with this really important project. This show is a member of the Emancipation Network, a Marxist podcast research collective. Make sure to check out our network sister podcasts, General Intellect Unit, Jumpsuit Utopia, Mortal Science, and Swampside Chats. And if you'd like to help out the show, please remember to head over to Patreon and throw me a few commie dollar. On this episode, you heard the theme tune The Order of the Pharaonic Jesters and Night of the Purple Moon by Sun Ra and his orchestra. Thank you for listening and please join me for the next episode of From Alpha to Omega. Thank you.